the World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What does a nation dedicated to fighting for freedom and self-government do when some of its constituents use that freedom to oppose the government itself? It's a classic dilemma in American history, and historians have argued endlessly over how far Abraham Lincoln should or should not have gone in curtailing civil liberties in order to fight what he called the fire in the rear, the threat of domestic political opposition crossing from dissent into treason. But what historians have scarcely looked at is the fire itself, the open Copperhead movement, and the threat of secret anti-war societies in the North. We'll talk today with the first scholar to study the Copperheads in almost half a century, Jennifer L. Weber, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you on a glorious spring afternoon in April 2011. The one day of the year when the temperature is just right between the uh, chilly and damp winter days and the overly hot and muggy summer days are one or two days that are just perfect each year. And this is one of them, which is very nice. Coming to you, as always, from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the university or its university system or the general administration or the state of North Carolina or any other entity just talking for myself and I know my guests will do the same thing. Always careful to get the legal things out of the way. Here in eastern North Carolina enjoying a beautiful day free from tornadoes today unlike earlier this week or last week and thanks to those of you who called or uh, emailed in to ask about that. uh, World Talk Radio uh, Civil War World Headquarters, rather, was uh, 
Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, was not struck by tornadoes. Uh, there were some in the area, uh, and yesterday a large tree on campus uh, came down right near the fountain in the center of the, the green area by the, the nice-looking old buildings. And uh, it, was, it was dramatic, but nobody was hurt, and uh, uh, we're all fine, so that's good news. Uh, other people in elsewhere in North Carolina or in the, the southeast, uh, not as fortunate. So uh, we, we appreciate that the weather missed us here in Greenville. Uh, and we hope it stays away as this is finals week here at East Carolina and everybody is busy uh, taking finals or grading finals in the case of the faculty. The, uh, this means there won't be a live show next week. It'll be commencement I'll be explaining to parents why it's a good thing that their students have history degrees and not hospitality management degrees with a nice job as a assistant desk clerk waiting for them uh, in a life of you know bleak emptiness following. Uh, but instead, they will be rich and full intellectually with their history uh, history degrees. Employment that's that's another issue. We'll we'll discuss another day. Is what I'll tell them. Anyway, um, so no show next week for commencement. Uh, Josh Howard of the uh, Department of Cultural Resources here in North Carolina will, will be with us on May 13, and the following week, uh, Daniel Crofts will be with us to talk about the mystery of the diary of a public man, a uh, very interesting story. So good shows coming up and more through the rest of May and into June. Uh, in the meantime, if you're curious to know if you missed anything, go to the coolest website on uh, perhaps the entire uh, intro web. Uh, it's the impedimentsofwar.org, uh, the companion website for Civil War Talk Radio. You can find out what's been on. The website experienced a giant bump in visitors over the past week, uh, possibly because our guest last week was Jamie Malinowski, who's been blogging about the war for the New York Times. So I urge any listener, if you also have a connection with an international multimedia conglomerate like the New York Times, feel free to mention Civil War Talk Radio in your line of work, as Jamie did after the show. And uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of people uh, came to check out the website. And if you're listening, if you're new to the show, uh, after hearing it through the uh, the Opinionator blog, the Civil War Sesquicentennial blog, uh, welcome and, and hope you stay around and uh, listen to the old shows and uh, stay with us for the new ones. And of course, you're always welcome to send us money. Uh, no radio internet presentation would be complete without reminding you you can donate to the book fund here at Civil War Talk Radio uh, to CivilWarTR at AOL.com. You can use PayPal. There's a button on the website on the uh, impedimentsofwar.org website. And uh, for $20 or more, I'll be happy to send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves or All for the Regiment, or maybe I'll just pull a random book by some other author off the shelf and send that to you. But no, ask for what you want. I'll be happy to send you one of my books. And uh, with uh, thanks for your contribution to the book fund here, not tax deductible, not a charity, uh, Charity begins at home in this case. Uh, I get to use the money for whatever I want, but actually some of it does go to the website to keep that running too. That is a labor of love that Mark Gaffney does for the show, and it's very much appreciated. 
Well, today we are talking about uh, Copperheads, the Northern Democrats who oppose the war. And our guest is Jennifer Weber. Uh, Jenny, are you there? I am. It's great yeah. hearing your voice. It's good to, to hear from you, too. We we narrowly missed back in December when uh, you were scheduled to be on, and I'm, I'm delighted that, that things have worked out this time around. Uh, I think the last time before that, uh, that you and I saw each other was, was in the backseat of the, the big van rolling across the prairies of <laughs> Illinois to Knox College. Uh, yes. uh, was that? The, I think it was the last time we, we had a chance to chat. That's right. That's right. Uh, we were going to the uh, the annual Lincoln Studies Center meeting there, and in in this uh, cost conscious time, the, the Lincoln Studies Center now sends a van to O'Hare and picks up all the participants in that meeting, and we drive four hours or so across the flatland to to Galesburg, which is actually, we have some interesting talks. Uh, oh, it's, it's the ultimate geek road trip. It's fantastic. <laughs> it, it is. You get, uh, you know, Alan Gelzo or uh, Jim Oakes or other people uh, all, all arguing about Lincoln and civil liberties and so on, and, and then contemporary politics, then it gets messy, and then we all mm-hmm. have to calm down again. <laughs> Well, it is uh, good to have you here. You were the the featured speaker last year and talked about uh, this issue, which uh, is the subject of your book as well, and it's always good to get the book plugs in early and often here. So uh, I get the full title, uh, which is obscured by the tape on the binding, so I'm going to open it. Um, Copperheads is the title of the book, the subtitle, The Rise and Fall of Lincoln's Opponents in the North, uh, from Oxford University Press. The, the most striking thing uh, in the introduction to to your book is your observation that no one has written a book about the Copperheads for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how can that be? Well, I think that uh, what happened was that the the guy who had really written much about this before I did had uh, successfully convinced people that this was a a very fringe group that that the peace democrats or the copperheads uh the democrats who were opposed to the war uh were a fringe group that um and and they posed no threat to overthrowing the government and i stumbled upon all of these sources in an archive completely by accident that uh, told me this was not a fringe group at all, and while some of them may have been interested in overthrowing the government, it was only a small minority. Most of them were committed to the political process as it existed, um, and I think they posed a very serious problem for and threat to Abraham Lincoln and, and his ability to be reelected, particularly in 1864, I think they also made all kinds of trouble uh, for him on the home front, and particularly in the effort to raise troops uh, in 1863 and 64. Well, you you say in, in also in, in the introduction that that asking if there really were secret societies is is the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like a good interview, let me start with that. Uh, were there really secret societies? I'll start uh, with the wrong question. I think there were. Or, or I let me ask, why is that the wrong question? Because I think 
that it sends us down a, uh, an alley that goes nowhere. Um, okay, so there were secret societies. And then what do you do with that? They, they, there's, they're secret. You don't really know what they're doing. You don't really know how big they are. Uh, you know rumors about what are going on with them, but where does that leave you? As a historian, I think the more interesting question is what's happening in the daylight, in public, um, that becomes obscured by asking about these secret societies. And to me, this, the far more compelling story is that Lincoln faced serious trouble politically on the home front. And I think that that was not at all recognized before because we were going down this dark alley, that it was just a dead end. Um, I think one of the things that I came to appreciate much more working on this book was how much difficulty Lincoln had in the North keeping northern public opinion behind him. You know, we kind of had this sense that, oh, well, of course you're going to be supporting Lincoln. Of course you're going to be supporting the Union cause. And, you know, what I came to realize in working on this book is that is not true at all. That was not a given during the Civil War by any means in most of the North. One... I, the the person who wrote about this before, uh, I assume you, you, when you say 50 years earlier, was Frank Clement. Right. And when he writes, that's in the aftermath of McCarthyism in the 50s, and you really do have a consensus that mainstream America is and is against communism. And if there are communists among us, they're secret and enemies. And sure. it, what you just described makes it sound like, like that's being applied retroactively to the Civil War, everyone's for Lincoln except some secret societies who oppose him. And you're saying that's the wrong model to apply, that that it's not like everyone's for Lincoln but the secret people. Rather, there's large open opposition to his his leadership. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think think that you're absolutely right to put Clement in the context of his time. And because, of course, we're all shaped by the events of our own time, and it does affect how we think about history and, and how we write about it. Uh, there's no question about that. So so Lincoln was opposed. Um, why did people oppose him? What what kind of things would, would prompt someone to, to be a copperhead rather than a, a, a war Democrat or a Republican? Well, they, they came under three categories, broadly speaking. Um, one group was immigrants, um, particularly Catholic immigrants, who um, had been targeted by Whigs and, to a lesser degree, by Republicans, um, the reformers uh, who, who wound up in the Republican Party who had targeted them for religious reasons or because they drank and uh, they were targets of the temperance movement. They really saw this as a Republican war, and they didn't want any part of it. The, the, these people tended to be Democrats anyway. 
and again, I'm speaking in very broad generalities here because, of course, there were lots of Catholics and lots of Germans and Irish who did fight on behalf of the Union. But that's one category for the Copperheads. Mm-hmm. The second is people in the lower Midwest, particularly, who either they or their families had come into that part of the country from the Upper South, um, from Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee. And so we're looking at parts of Iowa where they're coming up the Mississippi River, um, the lower parts of Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio in particular. The third group are people who were very conservative Democrats. Um, And the Democrats of that time are not like the Democrats of today. Um, The very conservative Democrats of the 1860s would actually have a lot more in common with somebody like Antonin Scalia. They had a very literalist interpretation of the Constitution. They did not see it as what we would call an elastic document. Um, And they thought that almost from the get-go that what Abraham Lincoln was doing was unconstitutional. And it's that language, the con- this constitutional language, that becomes the lingua franca of the entire Copperhead movement. That's what they all agree on, and it's the way that they all talk uh, about this war in, in broad terms, is that uh, many of them think that the war itself is unconstitutional, that the southern states had every right under the Constitution to secede. Um, and, and that is a very basic point of contention with Lincoln right from the outset of the war. What about race? Does that play into Copperhead support? Absolutely. This is the other area where they use a common language. Now, the 1860s, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, is not exactly a, a by our terms, a progressive time on racial politics. Um, and But even by the terms of that period, the kind of racial language, the race-baiting, racist language of the Copperheads is really shocking. Um, it is, it's raw, it's ugly, um, it's 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 hard to read. It is very hard for modern sensibilities to to read this because it is so deeply offensive. But they are m- most of them have no problem with slavery. Uh, they think that is is in the best interest of blacks and whites. Um, they do not. See African Americans uh, as being equal in any way to whites. That um, they can be very threatened economically by, and this is especially true of the the immigrants who are oftentimes on the bottom of the economic scale. Freedmen scare them because they can undercut their pay. So. There are all kinds of reasons for this, and the Constitution protects slavery. And these are people who take the Constitution very literally. 
So uh, it, it, they are no friends by any means of African Americans. And um, generally, as I said, they support slavery. So they have plenty of reasons to not support the war, but the uh, but there are plenty of Democrats who fit a lot of what you've just described. Stephen Douglas is certainly no friend to African Americans. Uh, certainly a Jacksonian Democrat. Uh, uh, to the extent he's interested in the Constitution, he would would presumably take it more literally. But uh, when when the war begins. Um, he immediately uh, uh, gets on, on board with the campaign, uh, and, and I imagine other Democrats did the same. What I'd like to do is, is think about that issue for a moment. We'll take a short break and come back and talk more. Our guest today is Jennifer Weber, author of Copperheads. Uh, we'll learn more about opposition to Lincoln during the war in the North when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are dealing with chronic illness or a disability, at times you can feel lost with nowhere to turn. It doesn't have to be this way at all. You can become an active participant with your doctor in the healing process. Tune in to A Healthy Way to Be Sick with host Mark Lerner. Mark has developed techniques to make your healing a partnership. Each weekly show will cover four main topics and how you can take steps and hear from experts that know the value of patient participation. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jennifer L. Weber. She's the author of Copperheads, The Rise and Fall of Lincoln's Opponents in the North. And we've been discussing in the first uh, session, uh, first section of, of the show today, uh, who, where the Copperheads came from, what uh, motivated people to join, uh, to identify with the opposition rather than supporting the war, uh, looking at the various groups, immigrants, uh, people of Southern birth, uh, and, and conservative Democrats generally. And uh, Jenny, the point I wanted was asking uh, as we broke off there was about Democrats like Stephen Douglas, who, who opposed Lincoln and, and the Republicans virulently in the 1850s, but after Fort Sumter was fired on, uh, they rallied to the cause just as in, in after September 11, 2001, many 
uh, most Americans put aside partisan differences, at least temporarily, and, and rallied to the national interest. Uh, did uh, were there any copperheads after Fort Sumter, or, or did they submerge and then, then show up again later? What, what happened there? Well, there were a few who were visible from the very outset. Um, there was an, an effort just a couple months into the war to move against Lincoln, saying that uh, you know he was a tyrant and what he had done was unconstitutional. That was brushed aside by the Republicans in Congress and never went anywhere. Um, but as the war went on and became more difficult for the North, particularly when they hit bad patches militarily, more and more people tended to gravitate to the Copperhead cause. There were two things that really galvanized the Copperhead movement before the summer of 1864. One was um, emancipation. That was huge because there were a lot of people who said, we, are, we were on board for this as long as it was a war for the Union, but we are not on board for this if this is a war about freeing the slaves. And they had a very hard time swallowing that. The second thing that really upset a lot of people and pushed a number of people who had maybe been on the fence, sort of lukewarm war Democrats, into the Copperhead camp was conscription. The draft, which was the first draft in American history, really alienated a lot of people, particularly those who believed very strongly in individual rights and civil liberties at all costs. They thought that the government was completely out of line in being able to force men into the army against their will. And so that created a a, a significant backlash politically for Lincoln, both of those things. Then what you see in the summer of 1864 is just war weariness. And there are an awful lot of Americans in both political parties, who really start asking very hard questions about whether this war is worth it. You know, just Grant, in six weeks in the Overland campaign, takes 64,000 casualties. And that's one army. That's the Army of the Potomac in a six-week period. Um, I really cannot imagine what the American public reaction would be today if we lost, if we took 64,000 casualties in six weeks. And that's from a population base 10 times larger today. Exactly. So it's really be like taking 640,000 casualties. Exactly. And it's really hard to imagine. Uh, yeah, it is hard to imagine how how you would maintain political support uh, through that. So, well, well, that, I guess that's the question. How does Lincoln do this? Uh, one... one one way he obviously deals with political opposition uh, to the extent it becomes verges on, on the physical opposition on violence is, is by arresting people and suspending uh, the, the writ of habeas corpus, but that would play into the uh, the Copperhead's accusations of, of unconstitutional behavior. So how does Lincoln deal with all this? Uh, well, for the most part, he ignores it. 
it's really very interesting what he does here. Now, there are thousands of habeas corpus arrests, but there's been a really good study on this that shows that most of these people had broken the law. They were not targets as political opposition. It's the vast majority, there are a handful of high-profile cases that are political opponents of Lincoln's, but they are by far the exception. Um, this isn't a dragnet like you see in, say, World War I, um, or even with Japanese Americans in World War II. It's nothing like that. The people who are arrested, uh, the, the vast majority of them are people who uh, are traitors or who are selling substandard military goods or uh, are draft dodgers. I mean, they, there are legitimate reasons to arrest them. Um, Lincoln himself mostly ignores this. There are only a couple of instances that he responds in any way to what the anti-war Democrats are saying about him. He really is a master at turning the other cheek. It, it really is astounding to me. Um, soldiers, however, are much less kind to these, um, these anti-war Democrats. They write home in just furious with what is happening with these copperheads. And they tell their families and they tell their friends that if they vote Democratic, that they will no longer have anything to do with them, that they will completely cut them off. And they tell them to pass along the message to the copperheads in their neighborhoods that these soldiers, when they come home on furlough or once their enlistments are up, that they're going to kill these guys or they're going to beat them up. And it's not necessarily an idle threat. There are instances of this happening. Um, so Lincoln has, uh, particularly by 1864, the soldiers in the Union armies are strongly, strongly attached to and identified with Abraham Lincoln. And I think they help keep his political fortunes alive uh, to some degree. Although by the summer of 1864, what we're really talking about here is life support. Because by the end of August, everybody, including Lincoln, thinks he's going to lose in the 1864 election. The chairman of the Republican Party, at the end of that month, goes to Lincoln and he says, um, you're, you're going to lose, and you're going to lose big. Lincoln writes a plan for his uh, cabinet for the transition of power. He has uh, he he takes this memo and puts it in an envelope, presents it at a cabinet meeting. Does not tell the members of his cabinet what's in it, but asks them all to sign the envelope, promising to agree to the contents of the memo inside. They open it shortly after the election, and they all have a great laugh about it. But in August. The cabinet members don't know what they're signing, and Lincoln is really convinced that he's going to lose. The chairman of the Republican Party um, suggests that Lincoln abandon emancipation as a condition of, for peace, 
Lincoln thinks about it and decides he cannot do that, that he, he made a promise. He cannot abandon these slaves who he has promised their freedom, and especially those 180,000 black men who are serving in the Union Army. He says that he would be damned uh, for time and eternity if he broke his promise to them. And so he decides that he would really rather be right than president. He will stand by emancipation. He will stand by uh, African Americans and um, and the slaves at the cost of his own political career, because that's the way it looks at the end of August. And what changes is Atlanta falls. And literally overnight, Atlanta, Atlanta falls overnight on September 1st and 2nd that night. And there is a 180 in public opinion in the North when Atlanta falls. Before that, that summer, there had been a broad sense that uh, it, 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 there, there had been a lot of interest in throwing in the towel. And after Atlanta fell, the sense was that the war was won and all that was left was just a mop-up operation. It's really an extraordinary moment in American political history. I'm not sure there's anything else quite like it. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a dramatic turnaround how quickly it happens. Yes. And, and the uh, the soldiers, as you point out, were behind this, uh, are behind Lincoln the whole time. They're, they're increasingly radicalized as the war goes on and support Lincoln and emancipation. And, and you start at the beginning of the hour, you mentioned that, that you'd come across archives where you, you found there was much more opposition to Lincoln than you'd imagined. Um, did you also, is this where you found the support for Lincoln uh, among the soldiers? Uh, you mentioned through their letters. Uh, read, what kind of archives did you find that, that, that opened your uh, eyes to the, this issue? Well, real where I first encountered this was in Illinois um, at what was then called the Illinois State Historical Library. It's now the Lincoln Library. And as I went from state one state historical society and archive to another in the Midwest, in every single one, I found these letters. Um, to the governor, to the governor, um, in collections of soldiers' letters, and then I went up and down the East Coast, and I found the same thing there. And I found these letters complaining uh, or with expressing concern about copperheads and what they were doing in these communities, and that neighbors who, before the war, had been able to agree to disagree on politics. They couldn't do that anymore. And on both sides, um, people who supported the war effort and people who didn't became really afraid of the people on the other side of the question and were really worried that, that these people, that people, those who did not agree with them were going to kill them in their beds at night, were going to burn down their barns, were going to kill their animals, we're going to destroy their crops. And again, 
all of those things did actually happen. It was not an empty concern. Um, it wasn't just paranoia speaking. All of those things did happen to people, especially in the Midwest. They happened in other parts of the country, too, but the Copperhead movement was strongest in the Midwest, I would say. Well, and you, you write about uh, you know, soldiers on leave, uh, soldiers on furlough coming home and literally engaging in gun battles with, mm-hmm. with Copperheads. So uh, this, this is, a, and not in a single incident, but in, in repeated incidents. Mm-hmm. So uh, this really does, I, I suppose it's a, an interesting lesson when people talk about how polarized politics are today. Uh, it's always good to have historical perspective and, and say if you want real polarization, uh, you've got the North against the South and then also within the, the South and the North, you have uh, people on the same side, theoretically, uh, coming to blows, coming to gunfire uh, uh, in their opposition to one another. Yeah, well, I, I think that one of the things that I learned in this that has not been at all appreciated is that in the North, at least, this was not just a brother's war. This was very much a neighbor's war in large parts of the country. Um, the One of the, the, the last major riot you have in the north, for instance, is in a town called Charleston, Illinois, and this is where one of the uh, one of the Lincoln Douglas debates had been, in fact. And it's a bunch of soldiers who are home on furlough, and they're targeted by a group of anti-war Democrats led by the county sheriff, and there is a running battle. Um, in front of the county courthouse in that town. Uh, and I think nine soldiers or something were killed in that. I don't remember the numbers offhand, but um, it, it, was, it, was a sig- it was significant. Um, and that was in March of 64, so that came pretty late in the war. And then there are, then there are you see these in really surprising places. There is... Um, there's a strong ant- copperhead movement, uh, particularly among the Irish in Boston, you know, the cradle of the abolitionist movement. You wouldn't really necessarily think of it being there, but it, there it is. Connecticut has a very strong movement. In fact, one of the leading uh, copperheads in the state of Connecticut is Samuel Colt's father-in-law. You know, so this is a guy who's getting rich. He's the man, the manager of the Colt ammunition plant or arms plant, munitions plant, I should say, and he's a man who's who's becoming quite wealthy off of government contracts. But he still hates Lincoln and and what he's doing in the war effort. When we get to this level of, of people actually shooting at each other, and especially you mentioned the, the sheriff leading uh, copperheads, this brings us back to the idea that the copperheads are more than just individual, you know, individual disaffected uh, people taking political action, but uh, are they organized? Uh, as you said at the beginning about secret societies, they're secret. We don't know uh, by definition, but did... You know, did the Knights of the Golden Circle or the Sons of Liberty or these other groups that we read about uh, pose a, th- a threat by this time? Were they were they the ones organizing to to resist the soldiers? Well, uh, 
it's it's hard to know. I mean, it's really hard to know. These societies are secret. There are agents who are infiltrating them. So you have some of these agent reports that are available in the archives. It's hard to know how much to believe. There's also a, 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 there are a lot of rumors that are being captured by the agency that is charged with administering and enforcing the draft, and they're hearing lots and lots of rumors, and they're reporting them very diligently back to Washington, D.C., and it's hard to know how many of what, how much of what they're reporting is serious and how much is just hearsay or rumor, but it does appear to me that there are clearly real plots afoot. I'm in no doubt about that. How widespread they are and how frequent they are is is another question. Um, There is a publisher who is arrested in Indianapolis with thousands of guns in his basement that were financed by the Confederate government. There is a an effort uh, that is broken up to come for Confederate agents to come down from Canada across the Great Lakes, uh, in this case, Lake Erie to Sandusky, Ohio, to spring a prisoner of war camp. The idea there is that the Confederate prisoners will band together with copperheads and they will go across the state of Ohio and perhaps other states, taking over local governments, perhaps the state government, um, creating all kinds of havoc in a guerrilla-ish sort of way. Um, and, and, and this is, at least in this one instance, a real plot that is actually launched and broken up on Lake Erie. There were rumors, at least, of plots like this all along the Great Lakes. There is a huge meeting um, involving a lot of copperheads just before the Democratic Convention at the end of August in 1864, um, where the proposition is that the Confederate government is going to finance this large effort to come down and uh, take over a couple of prisoner of war camps uh, in Chicago and uh, elsewhere in northern Illinois, and that that these organizations or, or these uh, prisoners of war and the Copperheads are going to then fan out and create all kinds of havoc. The problem is is that when these Copperheads in this meeting learn that they could be killed in the process of doing this, they decide that it might be a better idea to wait and see how the election turns out. <laughs> so hmm. they're not really willing to put their lives on the line for this. They 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 decide that um, uh, they'll they'll just wait and let the political process go its own course and and then make a decision about what to do. Well, the uh, I guess it's always the question trying to figure out these these organizations how serious they are and and, uh, they tend not to keep good records of things like that we'll take another short break now and we'll come back in just a minute we're talking with jennifer weber about copperheads 
Lincoln's opponents in the North. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back with more on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Holistic healing has been around for over 5,000 years. The basic concept is that of treating the whole person and encouraging a healthy way of living in harmony with nature and the core self. Every week, take some time out for Holistic Healing Moment with host Elizabeth Ami. What is out there, and how does it help on the transformational path of healing body, mind, and spirit? No matter where you are on your path, there will be a topic that will speak just to you. Tune in to Holistic Healing Moment, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. What's missing in your life? Do you feel like you've lost your identity? Are you trying to cope with a loss in your life? Are you trying so hard to be a people pleaser? Stop! Invest some time in Dr. Marla Sloan's program, Mind Over Matters. This program will help you find the answers to these questions and more. Dr. Marla's passion is to help people to be the best they can be. And this program does just that. Tune in to Mind Over Matters with Dr. Marla every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jennifer L. Weber. She's the author of Copperheads, Lincoln's Opponents in the North, the rise and fall of Lincoln's opponents in the North, to be specific, uh, the the Democrats who opposed the war. There were the war Democrats who, who backed Lincoln, who helped form the Union Party and merging briefly with the Republicans in 1864. But many in the North opposed uh, the war, and it's a timely topic. There's always uh, a tradition of, of dissent in wartime. Uh, I, I think uh, I don't know, if, Jenny, if you see this among your students, but at least those of us who are older than our students uh, grew up with the paradigm of, of the Second World War when there was almost no dissent, uh, you know, 90% approval uh, of the war effort, and took that as the model. And, and then you know, Vietnam seemed an aberration, and uh, the Gulf War and Iraq and so on seemed... Uh, different, but historically, of course, World War II is the aberration. There, there's a, a vigorous dissent tradition in the Revolution in 1812 and uh, Mexico and the Civil War and so on, uh, and World War I, and, and really only World War II is exempt from it. Uh, so, so while some of our listeners, uh, if they're people who, who are from the, the post-World War II generation, you know, think in wartime everybody's for the war, they would be surprised uh, reading your book to, to recognize the depth of opposition uh, in Northern society uh, during the war. Uh, the, uh, there was a secession movement, the, an attempt to break away the Western states and, and create a, a third country. 
I, I recall in, in my own research coming across occasional soldier letters that would refer to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it obviously never got off the ground, but, but you must have seen something about this as well. I did. Um, in fact, I saw quite a bit of it. And I think that this, you, you, saw, you saw this conversation really peak early in 1863, which I suspect is probably has something to do with the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, Lincoln issued the preliminary version of that in September of 1862. It goes into effect January 1st of 1863. By, uh, I don't know, the third week or so of January, Lincoln is confiding to a senator that he is very worried about what he calls the fire in the rear. He is more concerned, in fact, about what's going on on the home front, on the northern home front, than he is about what's going on with the Confederates, which is really startling, if you think about it, that he thinks that the people behind, you know, the the Copperheads are a bigger threat than the Confederates. I mean, that says something. Um, But, yes, there had been a discussion kind of off and on through the early part of the war about the Midwestern states breaking off and either forming a third country or joining with the Confederacy in opposition to the Yankees. Um, and that that talk reaches a crescendo, as I said, in early 1863. It doesn't die after that but it certainly dies down considerably and it's never a serious topic of conversation again after that but boy for a while there that was a pretty hot topic and there were a lot of people who were quite interested in that the the uh, the, the copperhead opposition you know for all that lincoln fears it that well, it does a couple of things. One is it brings out some some of his most brilliant writing in some of his public letters, uh, where he speaks in opposition to it. But ultimately, it fails and and doesn't doesn't accomplish much of anything. Why, given that it was such a strong movement, why what were its weaknesses? Why didn't it succeed? Well, uh, the first is that it was never organized. There was a lot of opposition. But I find this very curious. They, there was not real, there was not very strong leadership to this. There was no effort to weld it into any sort of a national movement uh, with any real form or initiative. It tended to be very localized. Um, in fact, people in different, even in neighboring counties, tended not to talk with each other about this. You don't see editors banding together uh, in an effort to steer the opposition in a particular way. That's the first problem. The second is, a, I think, maybe a, a problem more in hindsight is that there's a, a, a bit of a credibility gap because they never offered a, a real alternative to Lincoln's plan. They're, they were the party of no. 
And that was about as far as they got. Um, it was just no, 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 no. The problem is, and this is where I think they have a credibility problem, is they never, ever acknowledged the Civil War as an existential crisis. They n- never seemed to understand that if the Confederates won, it was going to permanently divide the country, that the United States, as everyone had known it, would cease to exist, and that there was going to be a real question about what would be left in among the ruins of the United States. They never addressed that. They never took that seriously. Um, they never... They seem to always assume that, oh, if the war would just stop, of course the South will come back in. But Southerners are saying very consistently, no, we want our independence. If there is a peace, if there's a negotiated peace, what we want out of that is independence. Well, what Lincoln wants out of that is reunion. Those are mutually exclusive interests um, or aims. So as long as Jefferson Davis and Lincoln are in charge, there's not going to be a negotiated peace. But the the Copperheads, and it's, it's just odd to me that they never recognize or acknowledge that the South is not going to rejoin the Union if, if the war ends, but they just want the war to stop. They just figure anything has to be better, and they're they're not looking at the consequences ahead. Let me we're we're running short of time as as happens here uh, too soon each week, but uh, you and I have talked about the fact that you came to the history game after doing other things. Uh, you, you teach at Kansas right now, right? Uh, uh, what? How did you get there? What? Where were you before that? Well, I was a journalist for about 10 years in California, and I worked as a political aide in the California State Legislature for about four. And I just, I started working on a master's for fun, because I always loved history, and uh, this is a hobby that went out of control. Uh, well, it, it, that that experience then must have influenced your research when you're reading about these political actions that you you'd lived in the political world. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I have a better understanding of the demands of the legislative process and understanding that you really in a in a real world way about how you have to make compromises and. Uh, do things that sometimes aren't always comfortable, but it's with a larger aim in mind, the half a loaf kind of approach, which I think Lincoln was absolutely brilliant at. He, he, he was very skilled at, at uh, you know, getting what he needed and not, uh, and, and being willing to give up what he didn't need. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And visionary in understanding that, in understanding what was important and what wasn't. Are you working on anything uh, for the future? I am. I have. I, I have uh, several things I'm working on now. One is a book called "Executive Power in Wartime," 
And that compares Lincoln, Wilson, and FDR uh, in terms of what they do to expand presidential authority in times of war. Uh, so that's one. I've got a couple of articles about conscription that I'm working on, and I'm also writing an article about the history of the Missouri-Kansas athletic rivalry, which is known out here as the border war. Ah, uh, the the uh, which we've we've had a lot of shows this year on Missouri and and Kansas. Uh, Mark Geiger was on uh, Dennis Bowman. Uh, uh, people have written recently about uh, the violence in, in Missouri in particular. And uh, uh, I guess it's a good thing that it's, it's mutated down to the form of, of an athletic rivalry and not uh, killing people, but uh, the, the fans may not see it that way. I don't know. Well, you know, the university officials on both sides got uncomfortable enough with it after 9-11 that they officially changed the name from the border war to the border showdown but uh, that has not taken hold in the public imagination. Out here, that's still known as the border war, regardless of what the university people say. That's right. You can't rewrite history just that easily. Not well, so much. Jenny, it's a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to uh, seeing you uh, somewhere down, down the uh, Civil War trail at some point. It sounds lovely. Thank you so much for, uh, for the chat. It was great. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network 